Hey, good morning. Uh, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Welcome. We are in our very last uh, of our dealing with our overcoming worry and anxiety group counseling session. Uh, we've been spending time uh, just in little, bit, little bitty bites of scripture to help us understand what is happening when we worry. How do we fall so easily to the temptation to worry? What counsel does God give us through his word to be able to engage our hearts and understand who we are, understand how we're wired and how worry is somewhat of a very, very common temptation. And to do that, we began in Psalm 131. You remember that? We looked at David's counsel to us in Psalm 131 where he described his soul as being quieted and calmed like a weaned child within him. And then he finished that Psalm 131 saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And uh, what we wanted to do was take our worries and be real honest with them, lay them out, write them down, take a look at them, and put over them like in large Sharpie, hope. Uh, that's our, our big hope. Uh, and what we've been doing now in the book of Philippians is, is really, really giving you the tools to engage uh, and practice. Maybe you're offhand. If you're really skilled at worrying on this side, we want to practice uh, in our offhand over here the skills that Paul commands us to. And we started with rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice that Paul uh, teaches us to counsel our hearts toward joy. So it was, it was rooted in our praise. And then he said it was rooted in our prayers. That as we engage with worry, that we ought to be praying as much as we're worrying. That we're counterbalancing our tendency to worry with making our requests known to God. And in that was the proximity of the Lord, that the Lord is near. And that encourages our prayers and God promises peace. And then last week we looked at our pondering, our thinking. Uh, what ought we to be thinking about? What should characterize the mental diet of the Christian? And we had that whole list of things. Well, today, uh, Paul is going to put everything into practice for you. Uh, this is the just do it portion of our series on worry and anxiety. Uh, there comes a point where you've got to get off your knees and you've got to start walking, right? There comes a point where prayer is done and you've got to start living out the truths that God has laid out for us in his word. And that's what this last little bitty verse is going to be, Philippians 4, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn Philippians 4, uh, verse 9. As you're doing that, I just want to make note of, of two, uh, two things that, were, that are happening in the life of our church in the past two weeks here. One is uh, Don Webb. Many of you know Don. Don's wife, Ellen, passed this week on Wednesday. Uh, that funeral is happening right now. Uh, so we're going to take time to pray for Don as he buries his wife of 28 years. They met here at Citadel Square in Sunday school. Don said she invited me over to mow her lawn, and I haven't stopped mowing her lawn since. Uh, so he, Don, if you know Don, Don is a sweet man, uh, will encourage us consistently, will encourage me. Even last week, he showed me poetry of his where his heart is the Lord's. So we want to pray for our brother Don this morning. Also want to pray for our brother Rick, Rick's cousin, Harold. Many of you may know Harold, you may not. He was a longtime attender of our church, moved here to Charleston, uh, a pastor for many, many years, and came and sat right over here. He passed just a, a couple of weeks ago, and um, as we spoke with him, uh, he, he was at the end of his life and said, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go and see Jesus. So two significant things that we want to pray for and lay before the Lord uh, as we pray for Rick, uh, his cousin. We pray for Don as he buries Ellen here this morning, all right? So let's pray and give thanks and uh, look to God's word here to give us hope and encouragement and comfort for times like these. Father in heaven, we pray for our brother Don, for our brother Rick as they... Um, 
are remembering the lives of uh, those cousins and, and a wife, father of 28 plus years. And we pray that uh, your word and your spirit would comfort them, would shepherd their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus, that there would be great comfort uh, that comes from the word of God. Father, the book of First Thessalonians says that we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, Father, we acknowledge that as your people, you have done what we could not. You have broken the power of Satan, sin, and death through what Jesus has done for us, that he has risen from the dead and we are safe and secure in him, and that even death cannot separate us from your love. So, Father, for those of us who remain and remember the lives of loved ones who have uh, gone into your presence, whose faith has become sight. We pray that the comforting uh, power of your spirit, your word, and indeed the body of Christ would circle and surround these men. Father, give grace to us to know how to minister to them in their time of sorrow. Uh, remind us of our hope that is present only as a result of the fact that Jesus has beaten death and has risen from the dead. Fathers, we get ready to look into your word here this morning and finish this series on worry, I pray for everybody in this room who has considered the things that we've said. For those now who begin to take steps of freedom and joy as they journey out of maybe a stronghold of worry and discouragement and despair that has laid hold of their hearts and minds, we pray that the gospel would be fresh bread to us this morning. That we would step in uh, and toward faithfulness to you as we put these things into practice. May we have receptive hearts and minds to understand what you give to us here through the words of Paul in the book of Philippians. And may we be a church that honors you with our faith and obedience and our desire to live out and to walk out the truths of your word. Father, forge in us a commitment to your word. May we be dependent, humble, seeking, joyful people and may we see a significant freedom in the minds and hearts of those who are in this room and those who watch it online when it comes to the worries that uh, so easily tangle us and um, cause us to fall. So, Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for your spirit. Thanks most of all for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, you got Philippians chapter 4 there? No? That's okay. I'll encourage you to find it again. Philippians chapter 4. I like it when you talk to me. I feel like I'm not alone in this room. Okay, That's just personal confession right there, just from my heart to you. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. You know, these practices, or at least the, the information and the counsel that Paul has given, may feel very, very weak to you. It may seem like no big deal to think about rejoicing in the Lord. It may seem like, well, I'm just praying. Uh, and it may seem like your mental diet is really not all that big of a deal. They seem like very small areas where sanctification happens. But by the end of this paragraph here in Philippians chapter 4, what Paul has done is take the fibers that are weak on their own, and he begins to braid them into a rope that brings incredible strength to your spiritual life. That by the end here, as Paul is now going to tell us to put these things into practice, what he's giving you is a confidence and a strength to really be able to navigate the temptation to worry. Isn't that what we've wanted through the course of this, this, our time together? Is that I want to be less of a worrier in 2021, amen? 
I, I want to move forward in confidence and joy and peace and faithfulness to Jesus Christ that worry would not take my legs out from under me as often as it has in the past. So as we go forward and we look at really the, the Nike slogan of Paul's counsel to us in Philippians 4, 9, where he's going to say, just do it. All of this stuff that we've been talking about, all of this stuff that we've been thinking about and praying about and rejoicing in the Lord, now it's time for you to go be about it. All right, so this text, this sermon is the great Put in the, you know, I don't know how many illustrations I can use. Put the shoes on, shoe leather out, let's move, let's go, let's be about being obedient to what God's word has said. This is the trouble with worry is that it can freeze us, can't it? That it can put us in a frame of mind where all we do is think about, pray about, ponder on these things without ever putting them into practice. And Paul's going to say by the end of our time together that this is where the God of peace is going to meet you in the journey. Where he is going to be with you as you step into doing the things that he's called us to do. So here's how this verse breaks down four different C's. He's going to give you the content of the things that we've learned. He's going to give you the character of the things that he, we've learned. That these things are not for Paul, just do as I say, not as I do. That Paul has modeled this for them. He's going to give you the command to practice these things, then he's going to give you comfort. He's going to unite comfort at the end of his passage the same way he did when he gave us the counsel to prayer. So all of that, those four C's are how you can think about this verse. You with me? All right, let's, go, let's be about it. Let's get into it here. Philippians 4, verse 9. Now, uh, look at verse 9, see how it starts, what you have learned. You may have a note in your Bible that looks back to Philippians 4, verse 8, that says these things that you have learned. And we said in verse, uh, verse 8 that it was really about our mental diet. So this is the hinge phrase in Philippians 4, 9 for Paul to where all of this work that we've been doing mentally now needs to work it out into our lives. We need to, to experience and live the change that we know that Jesus has won for us. You with me? So when Paul begins and he says, these things that you have learned, uh, it's the root word, learned, it's the, it's the word that we get the word disciple from or learner from. Uh, if you've read the book of Matthew, you remember Matthew 28. Matthew 28 says this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make Disciples, this word, this learner word, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> Paul seems to recognize that your growth in your spiritual life, your growth as a Christian will never surpass your knowledge of the word. That when Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the beginning of your Christian life. That's when you have come to the knowledge and understanding that there's nothing you can do to get your way to God. That your relationship with God is irretrievably broken. There's no amount of good deeds, there's no amount of money that you are a sinner and you are doomed. That there is no hope that you have. However, what... God has done in his great love for us is to send us Jesus Christ to bridge the gap between God's perfect holiness and man's complete brokenness. 
And when that happens, when you realize that there's nothing you can do but God alone has healed the relationship between you and him in what Jesus has done, then there's a recognition that I believe what Jesus has done for me. There's nothing I can do to make it to God on my own. I believe that Jesus is the one who has healed our relationship. And I, my belief in him results in baptism, which is essentially a public profession of your faith in what Jesus has done for you. But that's just the beginning, isn't it? Christians who've been walking with Jesus a while, that's just the beginning, right? You get baptized one time. And then what happens in your Christian life is you begin to grow. And you begin to look into the word of God and understand what he has done and understand how God comes not just to save you, not just to do a little remodel in the corner of the house, but he's going to tear it down to the studs and he's going to rebuild it even better. Anybody watch home renovation shows? You with me? He's going to gut the thing and make it new. And as you grow in the Christian life, the Christian life is not a sequence of experiences necessarily. The growth in the Christian life is particularly tied to the teaching to obey that God has given to the apostles, therefore given to Christians, and therefore given to the church. From year to year and season to season, you should be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, hey, that first month of 2021 is done, right? Here we are in February, and this is the shortest month, and March is here, and then the first quarter is gone. Is there something, as you're reading the Word of God, are you learning new things about God? Are you growing in your understanding of who God is and what he is like? Is there a freshness to your spiritual life? We're like the Israelites in the wilderness where there was new bread every morning, new bread every day. That for Christians, we don't live on yesterday's manna. You with me? That you can look back in your Christian life and look at these seasons and valleys and peaks where you walked with God, but when you go to bed and you wake up the next day, it's a new day and you need new provision. You need new strength. You need new uh, rehearsing of the truths of God. You need to remember again what he has done. You need to remember the truth of God and begin to learn and grow as a disciple of Christ. That's a part of, that's just the journey. That's normal. That there is no spot biblically for these people who come to faith and then have no hunger for God, no acknowledgement of who he is, no desire to walk with him, none of that. Like, that's not normative in the Christian faith. Now, there are areas in life and in seasons where you may be in churches that are unhealthy and in places where there's not access and all that, but the normative growth in the Christian life is around this constant uh, washing of the water of the word, what Paul says in Ephesians about the church, that that's the consistent experience of the Christian. We're always coming back to the fresh spring of the word of God. Let me... Let me uh, let me, let me give you a visual illustration of this. Keep your finger there in Philippians. Turn back to Psalm chapter one. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm one. <clears throat> I 
Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And all of those are movement terms that get slower and slower until you're seated and you refuse to listen to the spiritual truth of the word of God, right? Wicked, sinners, scoffers. Scoffers want nothing to do with the word of God. But there's a contrast. There's a different kind of way of life. This, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then the psalmist gives you a picture. Because we all like things in, in video, not in audio, right? We all want to see and experience things more than we want to hear things. Well, here's what he says. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. In my neighborhood, there are these giant oaks in Church Creek that, uh, that live right next to the creek. And you can't even get your arms around them. They're massive. And David says that he's like a tree. Constant meditation on the word of God, delight in the word of God, creates in you a spiritual strength where you are planted by streams of water. Not only that, you yield your fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, oaks. All because of what? A very simple, a very normative Christian practice. Meditation pondering and thinking on the truths of God's word. Considering what God has said in his word. And one of the things we said last week is the unthinking Christian is dangerous. That this is what it means to have a mental diet where we're growing in meditation and memorization about the truths of God's word that now begin to shape our thoughts and our feelings our actions, our words, all of that has begun, is, uh, begun to be shaped by our constant internalization of the word of God. That's how God designed it. Those, that's normative Christianity. Fundamentally, the teaching ministry of a church, the teaching ministry in the context of discipleship is simply this. It's, it's standing in front of the people of God. You know, when, when uh, Jesus restores Peter, you know what he tells Peter to do? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, right? Peter says, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. He gets restored, and, and Jesus gives him the job of feeding the sheep, the flock of God. And here's simply what it is. It's allowing the word of God to intersect the lives of the people of God. That's my whole goal. My entire goal in discipleship is somehow getting you to understand how the intersection of God's word comes across your life. And you have to reckon with truth and then therefore wrestle with the God of heaven and earth. That's the teaching ministry of the church. Do you want good discipleship? Good discipleship in the context of relationships in the body of Christ are fundamentally rooted in the word of God. I don't get up here and give you five great ideas that you ought to try this week. Because I love you enough to say what God says to you. You with me? That that's a part of what true discipleship and growth is going to be in our church. Where you begin to learn and grow and understand things about Jesus that begin to totally reorient the defaults in your mind. 
We need that. Now, growth as a Christian is not merely knowledge, right? Say yes. Okay, good. It's not merely knowledge, but it doesn't happen without knowledge of God's word. Knowledge is a part of it, but that's not all of it. Otherwise, if it was just knowledge, we'd just have all the Mensa people in the room, right? We'd all have IQs of one, whatever the top is. What's the top end of Mensa? I don't know. I'm not even that smart. Six? I don't know. Uh, we'd all have IQs that were the top, that God doesn't just save all the brightest people in the world because if it was just knowledge, we could just download it and be done and we'd all go to heaven. There's something else that has to happen when your life encounters the word of God. You remember what John says uh, in the beginning of his book? He said, to all who, believe, who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Something has to happen for you when your life encounters the word of God. And that's what Paul says next. These things, what you have learned, and number two, what you have received. Now, Paul, um, when Paul uses that term throughout his letters, received, I, I just quoted to you John chapter 1. You can go and look at that. John chapter 1 talks about receiving him, to believe in his name. That means we accept the biblical truth about who Jesus Christ is. So it's not just knowledge, it's also receiving. When Paul talks about receiving, he communicates about three different big ideas. Number one, he talks about receiving the gospel or the message of uh, the truth of who Jesus is. We looked at this when we looked at the book of Galatians. But Paul says this in Galatians chapter one. It talks about this is the source of the gospel message. Nobody thought up the gospel message. God had to reveal it and display it and declare it to humans. Here's what Paul says, Galatians 1. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about receiving it, he talks about its source, that the gospel message is not our idea. It's not man's idea. It's not the church's idea. It's a heavenly, divine idea. It's a mystery that God in heaven had to reveal through what Jesus has done. So that's the source Number two, there's the idea of content. That there's a body of doctrine that Jude says is once for all delivered to the saints. And that comes out of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Its source is in God and its content is received. So that the essential gospel message uh, travels generationally. That how do you plant a church? You begin by planting a church by not planting a church, by planting the gospel that creates a people who respond to the truth, that creates a family of God, which is the church. You don't just plant a group of people who decide to have a church. You need the gospel before you have the people. So Paul says, it wasn't our idea, it was God's idea. Number two, it's not our doctrine, it's God's doctrine. 
And number three, the gospel does something very particular. The gospel creates change. Source, content, and change. Let me show you this. Are you still in Psalm 1? No, you don't remember? That's okay. Turn from Psalm 1, wherever you are in your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you're back in Philippians, turn to your right. And you'll hit Philippians, you'll be in Philippians, you'll hit Colossians, turn a page or two, they're real small, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the gospel hits a group of people, what does it do? If it's not just knowledge that we can just download and it's just an informational change to receive truth that we've never known before, but there's something else that happens, what should happen? What should the result of true gospel preaching that intersects the lives of sinful men and women do? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what's happened to these people? There's been life change. Verse four, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word, there it is, in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So what happened? That the gospel so reoriented their life that they began to live different, believe different, act different, speak different. See, the gospel is radioactive. It's electric. It brings dead people to life. And what's fascinating to me about the gospel here for for Paul as he talks about the things you've learned and now the things that you've received, the source, the content, and essentially the tradition of life change, that what you will find in a healthy, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving church is the fruit of the Spirit. Have you noticed when you read about the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians that there are cultural truths, there are cultural realities? They have virtually nothing to do with the kinds of people who receive them. Rather, they have to do with the kind of people they create. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? They all transcend cultures and space and time and places. That's why when Jesus gets a hold of a group of people, no matter how diverse they are, socioeconomically, ethnically, men and women, young and old, no matter where they come from, what a kind of background they have had, when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets a hold of a people and a church, you start to see the fruit of the Spirit of God. See, why does this matter for worry? Because with worry, you and I come in as, a, as three, well, I don't know how many people are in here, let's say 300. We all come in with 300 different particular stories and struggles that have affected us throughout the week. And when we all come and we read the word of God, 
And when we all come and we sing about the person and work of Jesus, we're refreshed and things are happening in our hearts as you sing next to the person next to you. And you're reminded of the truth of the scriptures and the godliness to which he has called you. And now you begin to remember that you have, you have been called as a Christian man or woman to live out the spirit of God, that God has planted in you true new life that has taken root and making you like the tree of Psalm 1. And he's creating in you because he loves you, right? Philippians chapter 1 says, he who began a good work will be faithful to what? Completed at the day of Christ Jesus. That he is committed to creating and forming in you change. Amen and hallelujah. So you learn these things, Philippians. And you received these things, Philippians. But let me show you something here that I think is so beautiful about Paul and the way he deals with the Philippian church. Uh, we have content, right? There's your content, the things you learn and you receive, the things that you have uh, heard preached and the truth of Jesus Christ that you've received and you believe. But now there's something else. There's a character that's hinted in here. Did you see it in 1 Thessalonians 1? There's a character about this man, Paul. You know, there's no major doctrinal issue in the book of Philippians. That's why the letter is so warm and so inviting and so endearing. In fact, what Paul does in the book of Philippians is remind the Philippian church of their partnership in the gospel. So in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, this is what it's like for me when I suffer. And Philippians chapter 2, he says, here's the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, he says, many walk uh, not according to the gospel, not according to the truth of the cross. And their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. So that by the time you get to Philippians chapter 4, what you're seeing in Paul is Paul's inviting the Philippian church to experience and know God in the midst of their suffering and difficulty. He's saying this is really possible for you. And let me show you how. So you've learned it. You've received it. And now watch what he says here. You've heard, and you've heard it. Now, he, say, he packs it together, you've heard and seen in me. Now, the hearing here is not the content of the gospel. We've already covered that in Paul's mind. What Paul is saying here is that you've heard about my life. Timothy and Epaphroditus, in the beginning of Philippians, right, the end of Philippians chapter 1, he talks about them coming and giving a report about what is happening to Paul. And Paul wants a report about what is happening in the Philippian church. Because Paul recognizes we're both in this journey together. We're both experiencing who Jesus is and what he's, excuse me, what he's done for us. And it's you and I walking together. I'm over here, you're over here, but we're both walking with Christ in the situations that he's called us to. And what Paul says here is there's certain things that you've heard about me. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he, uh, he says this. This is Galatians 1.13. He says to the Galatian church, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And in Galatians 1, he talks about his conversion. And then later on in, the book, in Galatians chapter 1, he says this, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. 
I can't believe that that guy got saved. I can't believe that guy met Jesus. It, it blows the, the Judean church's mind that this guy, Paul, who was essentially a, a, a terrorist against the people of God, would have his life totally reoriented and now be preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's amazing. But that comes with, for Paul with a sense of reputation. That there ought to be, from Paul's perspective, a reputation that your life has. There, when, if you're walking with Christ, that Paul talks about in the book of Corinthians that uh, we spread the aroma of Christ wherever we go. That when you walk into a room and you come back to maybe your high school reunion, that there should be a, a sense about your life where people could say, I've heard something about you. Paul even says it in the book of, uh, book of Philippians here. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Just, just flip back a second. I don't know where you are if you're still in Thessalonians. Come on back. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I should, I should be better at that. Look at Philippians 1, just the last paragraph. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Imagine just for a second, just on this idea. Imagine if Citadel Square had that reputation if people would hear of the people of Citadel Square and they would say, they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, that's the reputation I want to hear in the church. That's what I want when, the, when you are really walking in your life with Jesus and I am in prison with Jesus that we might have the kind of reputation where people hear and acknowledge something is going on with those people. Something is happening with that person. You ever meet the people like that? Where they, they go through situations or suffering or difficulties and you hear about their response and you're amazed at it? That that's, that's real. That's a reality of what it means to walk with Jesus that our lives should create a wake. But what's the problem with reputation? The problem with reputation is that you're waiting to see if it's real, isn't it? Have there been any stories that you can think of of people with big reputations that turned out to be little bitty people when they were exposed? I make you nervous a little bit? See, and Paul's aware of that. Paul recognizes that I just can't talk a big game. I just can't have a reputation that's out there somewhere. It's got to be backed up by something. Look at what he says next. You've heard it. Not only that, <clears throat> you've seen it in me. I love that this is here. Because Paul recognizes, for those of us who are struggling with worry, or those of us who feel that temptation, <clears throat> Paul recognizes that what you need and I need is not just truth, but we need training. 
And beyond that, we need trainers that show us the way to maturity. That's what discipleship is about, guys. How many of you in this room have been walking with Jesus longer than 10 years? Raise your hand. You've got an opportunity to this year help make disciples. I'm not saying you got to be sinless. Because if anybody, I mean, you got any sinful apostles? Say yes. You got a whole bunch of sinful apostles. What did they do? They heard about Jesus. Jesus forgave their sins. Jesus rose from the dead. And then Jesus commissioned them to go and make disciples. A lot of times we get uh, hung up in the discipleship process of actually sharing our life with somebody else's life for the sake of them moving toward maturity because we think we have to have it all together. I don't know my Bible like I should. Well, maybe you should read your Bible. I don't know. Just a shot in the dark. Maybe you should read your Bible and then you should share it with somebody who hasn't read their Bible. And you know what you're doing? You're making disciples. Maybe you should share about how you walked through a season that was difficult and God comforted you with his word and with other people and then you've got an experience and a story where truths of God came to life on the page for you and you begin now to counsel and encourage and love and serve somebody else. What are you doing? You're making disciples. Moms with kids out of the house, can you get next to a mom with kids who are still in the house and encourage them about truths of the scriptures that have encouraged you and reminded you of Jesus' faithfulness when you were not faithful? Can you get next to them and encourage them and fold laundry and go, hey, it's a tough season. I know it's a tough season, but Jesus loves you and Jesus has loved me and he's been eminently faithful to me and I'm gonna be next to you to get through this season. What are you doing? You're making disciples. Men, have you walked through things where you've seen God be more faithful to you than you've been to him? Where you remember the truths of God that have broken your heart and broken your pride? Can you get next to a young man and encourage them that life is not all about their sexual pursuits and conquests and accomplishing their career? Can you remind them of Christ's love for them and show them the pathway to humility that actually creates true maturity in them? Then you're making disciples. What are we doing if we're not making disciples? We're having a lot of great Christian services. We're all coming together and talking about how great Jesus is, but we all leave here encouraged, but we don't tell anybody else. See, Paul says, you didn't just hear it from me, you saw it in me. I don't just talk to you about hospitality, I'm actually hospitable. I don't just control my tongue in public, I actually control my tongue in private. I don't just have integrity up front when the lights are on, but I've got integrity in the dark. And Paul says, I don't just teach you doctrine out here, but it's a part of my everyday repetition kind of life. See, you've got the opportunity to be a part of the most fun thing that Jesus has ever created, which is helping people come to the knowledge and understanding of who he is and then grow in understanding with him. That's the function of the church, that my life might impact your life and your life might impact my life and our lives together might bring glory to Jesus Christ. You didn't just hear it. You saw it. 
let me show you this. I, I want to, this is, this is too good. You still, are you in Philippians? You are? Okay. Go back to 2 Thessalonians. Now, not 1 Thessalonians. I already showed you that. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Back to your right. See, one of the things you learn to do in this church is just flip your Bible back and forth. The pages get all bent. It doesn't look, you know, it looks like you left it in the rain. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Y'all there? Paul was with the Thessalonians for three weeks, give or take. 21 days. And he had to, and uh, Paul in the book of First and Second Thessalonians has to encourage this church who thinks they've missed the rapture. They think God has forgotten about them. And Paul demonstrates something in First and Second, second ugh, First and Second Thessalonians that's so interesting to me that he works his butt off in this church. Second Thessalonians 3, now we command you, this is verse 6, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you, what? Received from us. See, so Paul believes that you just don't receive doctrine, you receive life. That there's a life on life that gets handed from person to person. That we walk this way in our house. We walk this way in our church. Anybody in this room have people who are ahead of them in the Christian life who've impacted their spiritual lives? Raise your hand. You can think of them right now. See how many people in here who can give names and faces to people who cared enough about them to do what Paul did to the Thessalonians? Let me show you how to do this. You ever have to learn a musical instrument for the first time? Do you think I want to take lessons from Timothy? Do you, can you imagine the sound that I would make with a violin? Just imagine it. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. But what I need is a teacher. I need a trainer. I need somebody to say, you don't hold it like that. The strings go on top, not underneath. You don't hold it. You don't hit it with the bow. You don't do that. That's not how we do it here. We do it like this. You need a trainer. You need a teacher. You need somebody who models maturity for you. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Paul didn't say, hey, I'm here. I'm kicking my feet up. Y'all serve me. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with the toil and labor we work night and day that we not, might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right. Paul could have, Paul in many places asks for help from the church. He asks for help from the Philippian church. Paul, at the end of the book of Philippians, says, I am more than adequately supplied by your gift. He receives ministry support, but he said there's something more important this church needs to learn. There's a temptation here in this church that people don't do the work they ought to do. They don't get to be about the work of the kingdom the way they ought to. They're too tempted toward being lazy. And he said, I won't let that temptation take root here in this church. I'm going to demonstrate godliness in this context and in this way. It wasn't because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul is hard, isn't he? Now go back to Philippians. See, Paul recognizes that godliness is not just a matter of ideas. 
and opinions or even convictions. Godliness is a matter of application. Godliness is a matter of doing these things. That's how he finishes the verse. So you have the content, you've got the character, here's your command. Practice these things. Continuous, repetitive action. Over and over and over and over again, you are practicing these things. That you now have habits when you walk with Christ that you didn't have when you weren't. That now when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where you are adopted as a son or daughter, you are now brought into a family that has a sense of family rules. This is what we do here. This is what we, we avoid here. These are the things that are precious to us. These are the things that are distasteful to us. These are the things that are dangerous to us. These are the things that we don't trifle with and we don't play with these things. You have family rules. So what should I be practicing? If you just walked in today and you want, you want to know, hey, what, is, what should a Christian be doing? And take this with all of the stuff that we've talked about in terms of joy of the Lord and the things of the prayer and our dependence upon him and how we develop our mental diet. What are the things I ought to be doing? You ought to have a general sense of a devotional life. Prayer and the word. And even seasons of fasting where you are developing your intimacy and your dependence on the Lord. That should characterize your life. You should have a time in your day where you are carving out moments to spend just you and God. My, my day, uh, I can't see my kids before I've spent time in the Word. So I got to get up at like 4.45. And I sit in the Word of God and in prayer for about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And then I walk my cup of coffee into my wife and I give her the cup of coffee and I get my day going. And if I don't have that, I can tell when I've missed it because my heart and my mind and my spirit and my peace and all of those things are compromised. And in my house, the words start at about 6.15. And it's not just a couple of words. It's a whole lot of words and opinions and thoughts and feelings and actions and dreams and desires. Now they all come down the stairs and they hit our kitchen and it's all talking all the time. I got to get ahead of that. I'm being honest. I got to get ahead of it. So I'll lose a little bit of sleep to get to me and Jesus, a little bit of quiet, a little bit of coffee, get my hoodie on, and I get to work. Number two, there ought to be a sense where you are participating in the family of God. God did not save us to be maverick Christians. You are a part of a family where you have older brothers and older sisters in the faith, and you are meant to be a contributor, not a consumer. You are meant and you are given a spiritual gift, and the body is given spiritual gifts. And so in the body, what Ephesians chapter 4 says, the body builds itself up in love. That means everybody's contributing in some way to the spiritual health and well-being of one another. Everybody. That you can learn from people younger than you in the faith and you can learn from people who are older than you in the faith. You can learn with people who are next to you in the faith. And you need those people. I know that sounds embarrassing to say as a modern 21st century Christian, but that's how God has wired it. That's how God has designed it. He's designed you and I to be dependent on him and one another. And this is the means of grace in the Christian community. 
that there are people who pray for me and my wife dies. You hear me? There are people who walk next to me when I suffer. There are people who help me in my parenting. There are people who show me new and true things about Jesus Christ in his word that remind me of faithfulness, that encourage me to walk with him. We call it relational responsibility in our church. Who are you taking responsibility for in their spiritual life to help them grow? Because if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 years, you've got a lot to offer somebody who's been walking with Jesus for 10 months. And that is when Christianity gets fun, is when you see the lights come on in someone else. And you see somebody experience God's peace for the first time. And you see somebody turn from darkness to life and from bondage to freedom. That's the joy of Christianity in the church, is that God would so be willing to use you and me. Isn't that amazing? That he would do that to make eternal impacts in people's lives. You're sent. You're growing in intimacy. You're growing in relationship in the family of God. You're growing personally in your maturity, but you're also sent. Can you share the gospel in 90 seconds with somebody at work? Can you talk about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the hope of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died, buried, was resurrected to bring us all to live with him forever? That was like six seconds. Can you do that? Can you talk about how that truth impacted your life to where you realize I was a sinner, I could do nothing to, to achieve and to um, accomplish my own salvation. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but Jesus loved me. Jesus came to me. Jesus saved me. Jesus, Jesus resurrected me and will bring me to live with him forever. And you can, you can have that too right now. That you are a sent one. Wherever, in your campus, your neighborhood, your family, your workplace, your you fill in the blank, your used car lot, I don't know why I threw that in. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about. Use cars. You've got a chance to share the gospel. Finally, are you serving anybody? Or is your spiritual life fundamentally about you? Are you serving somebody so that they would be built up? Not to receive anything in return, but, to, but because of Jesus has been such a great servant to you. Is there anywhere where you are being poured out? What Paul says in the book of 1 Timothy that I endure all things for the sake of the elect. God, use me however you want to use me, that I might be sent by you to serve somebody in some way. What has God given me to give away? Now, is that, that's about 90% of the Christian life right there. That's normative Christianity, all of us together doing those things, loving and serving our neighbors, loving and serving one another, loving and serving the purposes of Jesus Christ in our city. And Paul says, you heard about my reputation and you saw my reputation. You saw me be the hands and feet of Christ to you. You saw me model what it means to be satisfied in Jesus when I worked as hard as I could. Finally, here's your comfort. Can you feel the just do it in Paul's text? Paul has united peace to prayer previously in this passage. And the fascinating thing to me is that Paul has united peace to obedience. Isn't that interesting? That Paul finishes saying this. Practice these things. 
and the God of peace will be with you. Paul really believes that you will not make progress in overcoming anxiety and worry without obedience, without putting into practice the things that you have learned. To where these practices for us in the church begin uh, to be the place where we are um, working out our salvation in the context of relationship. Where your sanctification, your overcoming worry and anxiety this year, listen, it's a group project. Imagine if I just took one person, had them stand up in the middle, and we all stood up, and we all prayed for that person, and said, we're with you as you deal with worry this year. Imagine if our groups were places where we could be honest about where temptations to worry and anxiety were eating our lunch, and that we would say, as a church and as a body, we're with you. That we're going to be side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and we're going to do that well. This is not theory, guys. This is the real life work of sanctification where the church offers something that nobody else offers. Where there's no other place where you can come and hear brothers and sisters who've walked with God, who pour into your life, brothers and sisters that you can contribute to their sanctification that we together can overcome worry and anxiety because the promise at the end of this passage is not that you have the peace of God, but that you have the God of peace that goes with you. Isn't that good news? That, man, I need the God of peace to go with me. But he's got to go with me. Like, I've got to be doing with me stuff, right? Not, not thinking stuff, not like, I'm still thinking. I know you're near. And Paul says he's going to go with you. So let's be about it. Let's practice these things by continuous, repetitive action. Let's be used of God in the life of one another. Let's be used of God in our families. Let's be used of God in our, co-work, in our relationships, in our co-workers, with our neighborhoods in those places. And be reminded that God of peace goes with us. Let's be about it. Father in heaven, we need this text. We need to be encouraged toward obedience. We need to um, take thoughts captive, but we also need to start walking. Father, may it not be said of Citadel Square that we are a people of lots of thought but no action. May it not be said of our lives that we are all reputation, but no application. Father, this year we pray that worry would get quieter in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would give us the courage to pour out our lives and our hearts toward one another that you would use us in the context of this church, that you would use us in the context of our community, that you would use us at work, that you would use us in relationships that you have sovereignly ordained to put into our lives. 
Father, where we need discipline and encouragement, I pray that you would give it, where this church would be a place where we know and love the God of the word and that people would see it by our love of one another and our love of this city. Father, give us the strength to practice these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.